Keep still. Sometimes that is just about the most difficult thing to do, even when it's exactly what's called for. When you visit Yellowstone National Park in the western United States, they give you information about what to do if you encounter a grizzly bear. And it is very clear. Don't run because the bear is certainly faster than you are. Stay right where you are. Even if the bear charges you and every fiber of your being wants to start sprinting away, that is still the advice. Don't move. Keep still. In the civil rights era, when Martin Luther King Jr. and others led groups in nonviolent demonstrations against segregation and racial injustice, they often faced profound hostility, verbal and physical, from other citizens and from law enforcement. And this is what they called on participants to do. Don't run, don't retaliate, stand your ground. There's nothing natural about that reaction when someone is attacking you. It's why King and other fellow leaders held lengthy trainings in preparation for their demonstrations to teach their people to keep still. When you find yourself in a conversation with someone about, uh, with whom you disagree deeply about something important, about politics or faith or society, you may find yourself wanting to do one of two things. Get away as fast as you can, or put up your dukes and start hashing it out. And sometimes one of those might be right, but of course there is another option. You can stay put for a while and listen. Try to understand the other person's view and how he arrived at it. What happened in her life that led her to this place? You can keep still. When we encounter a threatening or stressful situation, humans are wired for those two basic responses, fight or flight. And sometimes those responses serve us pretty well. Sometimes some version of one or the other is exactly what we need to do, but not always. Some situations demand that we stay right where we are. I'm pretty sure keeping still is not what the Israelites had in mind when they heard the rumble of chariot wheels in the distance there at their campsite by the edge of the sea. They've just had their first taste of freedom. Pharaoh has finally sent them away after that devastating and final tenth plague. It all happened so fast. One day they were enslaved, as they had been for generations, and the next, they were free. Banished, actually, told to sort of get out of town as fast as they could. There was no time to prepare, no time to wait for the bread dough to rise or to pack much in the way of provisions, but they were free. And Moses was in the lead, bringing them into a new future, wide open with promise. The air itself must have been delicious as they walked out of Egypt. Before long, they reached the shore of the Red Sea and set up camp, expecting never to see Pharaoh and his chariots again. But there by the water, they heard that sound and they knew that something was very wrong. Pharaoh had changed his mind. This ragtag group of newly freed slaves didn't have a whole lot of options when it came to that approaching army of the Egyptian king, of course. But probably just about anything, running off into the hills, going for a good long swim, making some heroic last stand with whatever weapons they could muster, 
Probably just about anything sounded better than staying put and waiting for the army and whatever it might have in store. But you heard our reading today. Standing there with the sea at their back and the approaching army in front of them, the people received this counsel from Moses. You have only to keep still. This is not a time of fight or flight, according to Moses. This is a time to stay right where you are. That probably felt about as natural as standing still while a bear charges. But of course, the idea there is that maybe the bear will lose interest in you if you stay still. And it doesn't seem likely that Pharaoh and this army are going to lose interest easily in the people. So what in the world does Moses have in mind with those words anyway? Well, to answer that question, it helps to look back a little further in our reading to the moment when the people first spot that approaching army. Remember, they've been through some pretty amazing displays of divine power lately. They've seen the Nile River turn to blood. They've seen plagues of frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts descend on the land. Maybe most miraculous, they've seen Pharaoh himself, the eternally hard-hearted tyrant, have a change of heart and let the people go. Moses has been there through all of it, assuring the Israelites that God has heard their cries and is with them. So you would think that when the going suddenly gets tough here, they would cry out to God, the one who's been so present, so involved, so clearly at their side. But read closely, and that's actually not who they cry out to. Without missing a beat, they swiftly turn on Moses instead. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you, that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We're going to keep reading from the Exodus story in the weeks to come, and you will find this is something of a theme Moses has to endure a whole lot of complaining from these newly freed people. But what is so interesting in this particular complaint is what's missing. Not only do the people not cry out to God, they don't even mention God at all. Where is God in all of this? In the struggle they've engaged in? In the prophet who's been sent to free them? In the miraculous escape that's just taken place? Nowhere. In fact, according to their complaint, it is all about Egypt and Moses. Walter Brueggemann notes that in their little speech here, the Israelites utter the name of Egypt five times. It's the only name they know, the name upon which they rely, the name they love to sound. And that sounds strange, right? I mean, don't they see that God is at work in their incredible story? That God is reliable? and can be trusted? It sounds strange until I remember that this is basically how I talk, too, in terms of what I can see and prove and easily understand. And in this case, that would be an advancing army and a bunch of vulnerable people and a prophet who had a big idea about freedom. And if that is all there is to this story, then the people are right to complain to Moses. He is no match for the chariots headed their way. But the Exodus story is about something else. 
It's about a God who hears the cries of the people and who does something about them. Moses wants to guide his people and us too into a new way of thinking and seeing, a way that trusts that God is active and involved and will make a way toward liberation, even when it seems the roads are all blocked. And so Moses' response to the people is all about God and turning their attention there. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Yes, Moses is telling them to be physically still here, to stand firm and to not run away and scatter. But he's clearly calling them to more than just that. He's calling them to trust and to witness, to remember that there is more at work here than just what they can see, to root themselves, even and especially in this fearful moment, in the faithfulness of God. Now, it's interesting and maybe also a little bit funny that in the very next verse, right after Moses tells the people to stay put, God says this to Moses. Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. That kind of sounds like the opposite of keep still, right? I know you're not supposed to talk about textual criticism in a sermon, but in case anybody is interested, scholars do believe there are probably two separate ancient accounts of the scene at the Red Sea that are kind of woven together in this particular chapter of Exodus. And you can probably spot a seam right here, a spot where you can see two different ways of telling the story in a slightly different way. You can read more about that if you want, but really I think it's kind of wonderful to have them both here just like this, because it actually is possible to do both at the same time, isn't it? To keep still and to go forward? It's possible to be deeply rooted in who you are, to remember that you are loved, that you are called and claimed by God, that you are never alone, and at the very same time to be on a journey, continuing to learn, continuing to discover. It's possible to trust that God is active in the world, to trust that God is still involved, still speaking, still making a way for those in the margins, and at the very same time, to be marching and advocating and speaking up for those who are left out. It's possible to have faith in God's coming realm of justice and peace in that great promise, and at the very same time to be taking steps toward that realm here and now. For the Israelites, freedom lies on the other side of the sea, and they certainly need to put one foot in front of the other to get there, to go forward, to participate in their own liberation. But Moses calls them to keep still as they go, to remember who they are, and to remember the God who's at work in their story. That's an invitation for us too, all these years later, as we face the seas out ahead of us, seas of systemic inequality and injustice, of corruption and abuse of power, of widespread xenophobia and isolation, of a creation crying out under profound misuse and abuse. We may not be able to see our way clear to the other side right now, but even so, we are invited to both, to trust and to action, to remembrance and to risk, to faith and to advocacy,
to rootedness and to movement. Friends, the God of liberation is still at work, and we have a role to play. So keep still and go forward. Amen.